Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan, and I'm absolutely honored. And Amanda Ripley, I've uh, been waiting to have this conversation with you for months, and thank you so much. Before we get started, I want to just extol your your accomplishments, if you don't mind. You're the co-host of the Slate podcast, How To, uh, best-selling author of The Smartest Kids in the World, The Unthinkable and High Conflict. Uh, I've read uh, High Conflict now twice, uh, and uh, I think you know we come at this phenomenon of polarization and high conflict from different angles, but you definitely hit a lot of the main things that I've understood and, and, and discovered over the decades. So, um, and it, I want to just do a shout out that I first learned about Adam Grant on the Jordan Harbinger sh podcast where he was interviewed. I reached out to him and he's the one who said, do you know Amanda Ripley's work? You've got to read High Conflict. Let me introduce you. And so I just want to thank Adam. I love his work as well. Uh, so yes, Amanda, all, all roads lead to Adam Grant at the end of the day. It's like he's the new Kevin Bacon. Um, he, is, um, he is amazing. He is and amazing. I, and I'm very grateful to him. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, connecting great people who are doing important work is part of what needs to happen on the planet. So Yeah. And it's like, I mean, it's the best, isn't it? When you find out that somebody working in a totally different lane has hit on a lot of the same discoveries and has a lot of the same questions and curiosities. I mean, that is like, that is the magic, right? When you find those yeah. intersections and he is really, it really good at is. making those things happen. Yeah. It it really is. And our greatest resource on earth is, is human beings, in my opinion. There's so many brilliant people and they're not their their genius is not being utilized or it, it's being, you know, in silos and not this, you know, networking connectivity. But I, I just wanna uh, there's so much I wanna talk about, but I I um where shall I start? I, I thought, you know, just stating uh, if you don't mind, from a previous interview you did, you did some high points of like the difference between good conflict and bad conflict. And we're talking about high conflict, which is, you know, volatile, predict it's predictable, it's rigid, same emotions, simplistic, a lot of certainty on both sides that they're right and everyone else is wrong, a lot of righteousness. A lot of chronic stress and, and even violence or tendency to violence versus what you advocate, what I advocate, which is curiosity, surprise, fluidity, using complexity. Like the world and reality is complex. It's not a binary, all or nothing. Humility, passion, uh, and spikes in stress hormones where you're not constantly, you know, at high stress levels where you don't have a lot of critical faculties available and the violence is unlikely. So I just want to set that table. Um, and I was fascinated to learn in your book about the lawyer who is in the old model of adversarial between people, you know, divorcing and him realizing, you know what, this doesn't have to be this way, even though it's always been this way. 
why not a mediation model? And he's literally created an entire field and just helped tons of people. So you opened your book, I believe, with that story. So I'd like to start there and how you came to write High Conflict. And especially, I want to know what you've learned since the book has come out. I've listened to so many of your, of your other interviews, Amanda. And at that, I will stop talking. Well, thank you, Stephen. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here with you. And um, yeah, you know, I, I sort of got obsessed with this question of conflict about six or seven years ago when it started to feel like our political conflict in the country was no longer behaving in a linear fashion, right? It wasn't following the normal rules of engagement or physics or anything. And right. it felt like as a journalist, anything I might do would either make things worse or have no effect at all, which, mm -hmm. you know, was kind of a sobering realization. So I decided to stop doing traditional journalism and start, you know, really following people who understand conflict intimately, and in particular, people who have been stuck in really malignant conflict, and who have shifted into this kind of good conflict or healthy conflict, um, and mm -hmm. trying to see, you know, in a parallel, right, to what I think you have done, trying to learn from people who have made that shift and from people who study the difference between um, high conflict and good conflict and healthy groups and unhealthy groups. So really following their journey has been incredibly helpful to see what are the patterns, right? What do they have in right. common? And what can the rest of us learn from that, uh, that process? Because it's very similar, you know, whether you're leaving political high conflict uh, or um, gang conflict or uh, religious conflict, the human behavior is pretty much the same. I mean, there are differences, right, in the the scale, differences in the access to firearms, right, but there, right. the behavior is is the same. And so there's a lot to be learned, I think, from looking across these different uh, yeah, and especially silos. looking at solutions, people who have come up with novel approaches that are out of the box. Like, uh, was it Friedman, the attorney that you? Gary about? Friedman, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, like you said, was just a world renowned conflict expert based in California. He taught negotiation at Harvard and Stanford. He's helped thousands of people work through really ugly conflicts from divorces mm. to labor walkouts. Um, so, so part of the way I actually found him was I went to do conflict mediation training with him because mm -hmm. I'd heard that he was the best. And so uh -huh. I went, uh, to do training with him and he was fantastic. I realized within the first, you know, three hours that there was just a lot I had not understood about conflict in particular, the role of blame and, uh, shame and, contempt, right? And so it was fascinating. But somewhere during that week-long training, which was in Mexico, um, he shared with the group that he had recently run for office in his tiny town in Northern California, hoping to change politics and make it less toxic, much the way he had done with right. the legal system. Um, and that it was not going well. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> So I made a note to, you know, keep in touch and ended up following him for a couple of years for the book. Yeah, it was, humility is so important to go, you know what, uh, I'm not, 
I, I, I'm teaching one thing, but I'm fa falling into behaviors that I had never thought of myself engaging in. And as you said in the book, I believe uh, he was getting coached by a political expert on how to do things. And it wasn't until he listened to his wife that he like started coming back to him, his self and his sensibilities and his values and realized this isn't working. I need to exit and be part of the community again. And, and, uh, and it, it, it's, it's so helpful to see an expert go, you know, oops, I'm a human being. Yeah. You know, and we so make brave, mistakes. Right? Like it is yeah. to his great credit that he was able to talk publicly about this in depth. And, you know, I was worried about him. I was worried about what might happen because it's his right. whole career, you know, has been. Um, but, but after the book came out and after excerpts came out, he said, the funniest thing happened, Amanda. He said, um, the more vulnerable I am, the more people seem to love me. <laughs> so he just found that it didn't hurt him, that he got more clients, that people reached out that he hadn't heard from in years. And so there's an interesting paradox there, but it is, it is very unusual, well, right? To, to have that kind of humility. Well, I th I think it it it's happening more and more for for people who are truly dedicated to learning and to improving themselves and and making the world a better place. Uh, and and one of the critical things is being open to feedback, even from people who don't think like you, and especially from people like that, right? And right. Uh, and 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 I've been trying to encourage people not to call cult members stupid or crazy or brainwashed because uh, I was in a cult and I knew that it was counterproductive right you know and and as you were saying in your book you know the intuitive approaches which is just to shake the person and say right. you're in a cult you're being brainwashed this is counterproductive and so whoops so what do I do and how do I manage, you know, the difficulty with emotions and relationships when when people are so certain they have the truth? And that's where I loved Adam Grant and why I reached out to him first when I heard him talk about his book, Think Again, because mm -hmm. I told him I've been using your book with my families that I'm coaching to get people out of cults and because he doesn't talk about cults in it at all. And, and he's done a TED Talks and other talks, we can get people interested in the idea of separating your ego from your beliefs. And you know what? Pursue truth. You can never go wrong instead of fantasies or wishful thinkings or other types of you know, uh, delusions that you actually know reality. Because I think we're all human and nobody's God. There, there are cult leaders who say they're God, but I haven't found anyone that stands up to, to the criteria. Anyway, back to you and your fascinating book that I really want people to, to get and, and read and really think about. Um, so I want to I ask you to just comment. You use terms that I love, like conflict entrepreneurs. And the first time you used it, I was like, Steve Bannon. Uh, you know, from my <laughs> cult of Trump frame, right, he's right. like, burn it all down. 
more chaos is better. You know, yeah. we finally found our guy who can, you know, take us to the finish line to destroy America. And I'm like, oh, conflict entrepreneurs. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, it, it share that concept with our listeners, please. Yeah. So it, it seemed like there were about four, three or four conditions that are present every time a conflict becomes toxic and turns into high conflict. And one of those conditions is the presence of conflict entrepreneurs. So these are people who exploit conflict for their own ends. Usually if they're professional, long-term conflict entrepreneurs like Steve Bannon, they usually are themselves um, suffering in some way internally. Oh, I don't yeah. know him. Yeah, I don't know his story, but usually that is the case, right? Like um, there is some kind of damage that hasn't been um reckoned with um so his ex-wife can testify to that i believe yeah right no it's it's a very common thread and then you have like sort of amateur conflict entrepreneurs right who are just kind of um passing through and we've designed a lot of our institutions and certainly our social media platforms but also journalism and politics to glorify and reward conflict entrepreneurs so you so you get into a situation where you know, any, any of us can be a conflict entrepreneur uh, on any given day. I try not to be one, you know, but it is right. hard to resist. So, so yeah, it's important. And, and everyone I followed, whether it was Gary, who, you know, lost two years of his life to this, you know, sort of petty political high conflict, or Curtis Toller, the former gang leader in Chicago, who lost years and years of his peace of mind to a vendetta in Chicago. Um, or activists or regular voters. I mean, in every case, one of the first things they did to shift out of high conflict was to identify the conflict entrepreneurs in their midst and try to distance themselves from the conflict entrepreneurs. So that did seem to be important, whether it's changing who's in your social media feed, right? Or changing where you get your TV news or changing who your lawyer is, right? If you're in a divorce. So in Gary's case, like you mentioned, it was uh, important for him to start relying on his wife for political advice as opposed to um, a veteran political operative that he had been relying right. on. So, um, you know, that's that's not always easy to do. You know, since the book came out, people have written to me and said, OK, great. Thank you. This concept of conflict entrepreneur is very helpful. Um, but what if you can't distance yourself? from the conflict entrepreneur? Um, what if mm -hmm. they're your boss or your husband or your president, right? Um, so, you know, that's a harder problem, but I did end up writing a piece where I just went out and reported it, just the one thing I know how to do and talk to people who know more than I do. And, um, as you know, I think you have to, again, do the counterintuitive thing. You know, you have to understand the conflict entrepreneur better and you have to see if you can speak to their other identities, right? As exactly. son or father or mother, whatever the case, can you figure out, as Gary told me, if they're 90% conflict entrepreneur, can you speak to the 10%, right? Can you find a way to light up that identity outside of the conflict to channel some of that energy in that direction? And, and sometimes yeah. you can't, right? Mm -hmm. So um, for me, a lot of the con con professional conflict entrepreneurs are paid actors, and they may be 
state actors uh, hired by Putin or working for Putin or being blackmailed or China or Iran or North Korea or ISIS or even former American military intelligence people who did who did fourth generation psychological warfare like Michael Flynn. Um, and and so every every case has to be looked at individually and to understand a person's upbringing, and, et cetera. But it's the family and friends I've found, the people have access mm. that if we can influence them to understand. And for me, the big the big lift is how to educate the planet about the differences between ethical influence and unethical influence. Because mm -hmm. the law is 100 years out of date. And they say, oh, it's a slippery slope. We really can't tell. But I've pulled together all the brainwashing models, Amanda, and trafficking law, which is illegal in the US and elsewhere, uh, and did the first quantitative study on my on my model, the bite model of authoritarian control, and added a uh, law professor emeritus's social influence model, Alan Shefflin, where uh, an expert can explain to judges and juries the influencer, the influencee, and the motives and the techniques of influence, you know, the authority maybe of the uh, predator or the influencer. But we need to have everybody understand this because confusion is what mind controllers love the most. And the, the, the overload technique that has been used on the public, especially in the last six years, makes people numb and overwhelmed and tune out. Like it's too much for them. They don't even, can't even, they can't manage a frame that's workable for them to go forward. And then I'll say one last thing, and then back to you. I really believe finding former Trump believers, uh, people who were in uh, religious cults that were in incorrectly uh, represented in the media as Christian evangelicals or white Christian, the, the large majority of these folks are in this new apostolic reformation, authoritarian version where the leader says they're an apostle and they get direct revelations, and it's all about protecting people from Satan. But if we use former members, former pastors of groups like this, and get them in the media and destigmatize, lower the temperature that, yeah, so what? I, I believed bad things, and now I'm free. Yeah, you know? right. So we're trying to do the hashtag, I got out, to, you know, to try to mirror the, the success of the Me Too movement. Uh, to destigmatize us. Look, we all can get conned. We all can yeah. be, you know, indoctrinated. And is it and thinking then that it makes it easier for other people to exit? Thousand percent. Yeah, yeah. Thousand yeah, percent. I, I know, I'm curious if you run into this, Stephen. Like I, we, I sort of, I do trainings of journalists about how to cover conflict differently so that we don't make it worse, right? And one of the things that we encourage journalists to do is to focus on different sources, right? In a mm -hmm. really intractable conflict, if they're covering, you know, QAnon, let's say. Um, so one source category that we typically don't look for as journalists, but should, uh, is the changed source, right? So the source right. who has, who has changed in some fundamental way and, and is open to talking about it. So Gary's one example, right? But also right. former cult members and former, uh, you know, 
Trump, you know, enablers, let's say. And so there are former Trump total trolls who've come out and said, I was a troll for Donald Trump. And now I like David Weissman, who I wrote about in my book. Yeah, right, right. And so we anyway, have to amplify those stories because it, it also gets us out of the fixed mindset, right? Like the fixed mindset of conflict where you think the other side will never change. Therefore, there's no use in even trying, you know, that sort of fatalism. Uh, but yep. what was what I was going to say is, and I wonder if you run up against this, the last time we were doing this, one of the journalists really hated this idea. This happens often. One of them said, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to platform former QAnon members because he feels like it's somehow, he was saying that it was somehow amplifying QAnon. It all depends on the ex-member. Right. And I mean, in this case, we were showing an example from CNN where they had a group of former QAnon members trying to explain, you know, that they had been lonely and disconnected and why that this happened and, and, and how they've, how they got out of it. And it, you know, it was very thoughtfully done, I thought. But he just had an emotional reaction to it, right? Like he just didn't like the idea of, uh, of talking to these people. And I wonder if you ever encounter that, that kind of resistance, like a, a sort of a allergy to even giving a microphone. Sure. So, I mean, I, I, what I've developed over 46 years since my own deprogramming from the Moonies is basically a psychoeducational approach to family members and friends and amongst, you know, putting together a two-day training, you know, to come together to figure out how to help a particular person, there's always somebody that is not on board, maybe multiple people who are just like, well, they're an adult or they, they, they've always been difficult mm. or, you know, this, that, or the other. And, and as a therapist, we call this resistance, right? Mm. Why a person is not cooperating and <laughs> collaborating, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but I do want to say that I, I have a lot of comments about what the media can do differently in a more effective way. Um, but uh, the media, I think, should be educating the audience about social psychology and how the mind works. I there agree. should be more 100%. mental health professionals on TV and in quoted in, in the media and there's a bias against former cult members. And I'll mm. just take a minute and say, there's a very important principle in social psychology called the fundamental attribution error. You're shaking your head so you know what I'm talking about. So when people are trying to understand other people, their first instinct, their first heuristic is there's something wrong with the person. That's mm. how they, why they got into a cult. So Steve was stupid. Steve right. was lazy, Steve needed a father figure, whatever. Instead of Steve's girlfriend dumped him and three women flirted with him and lied, right. and he was incrementally indoctrinated, right? That's the social influence explanation. So I would say as a generalization that former members are looked down upon by the media, by the public, that yeah. we're defective, there's something wrong with us. And quite honestly, I've had a master's degree since 1985, but it wasn't until I got my PhD at the end of 2020 that people started like taking me seriously that I huh. actually am a scholar and I actually can talk about this in a, you know, in a an educated way. Wow. Um, well, I guess it's a way, it's in a way 
probably, right, for, for us to feel better, to feel like we are better than, right? Because we would not fall for these tricks. And it's a, it's it, an, a delusion that helps yes. make the world feel safer. I'm you guessing. named it. It's, it's another f- way of saying it is the myth of invulnerability. Yeah. Oh, right. it would never happen to me. I'm too smart or I'm too hep right. or whatever. Right. But it, it's a common human trait. Uh, soldiers going into battle, they think someone else is going to get hit, killed or yeah. maimed, not them. It's a defense mechanism, as you correctly said. But we got to get over it and realize we're social beings. We're dependent on information. The social media has changed the fundamentally how the mind works. Mm-hmm. And there are all these computer algorithms and data that's been collected on us that we're in a very different place than we ever were in the past. And it's going to take extraordinary measures to figure out a solution to preserve human rights and rule of law and not have open civil war with AR-15s in the streets. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want I want to come back to, if I may, your, your some of your other ideas for you know solutions uh, that you've you've encountered in all of your research for the book High Conflict and Sense. Yeah, I mean, so there's things that you can do individually, right? And there's things that are really best done at scale, right? At institutional levels. Um, but the thing that I always start with is is sort of recognizing the difference. And this is what I think we would we are both trying to do in different ways, like sort of helping mm-hmm. helping people uh, get a little smarter about what are the signs of, say, a conflict entrepreneur or uh, a cult, right? Like so that we're not so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And um the things to watch out for with high conflict are humiliation, conflict entrepreneurs, corruption, and binary group identities. So the idea of us versus them, my side is morally superior to your side. As Curtis once told me, the the former gang leader who's featured in the book, he said, you know, I think anytime there's an us and a them and a better than and a less than, there's always room for war. And I think that's right. I mean, we're always going to be in groups as humans. That's how we're wired. And groups, as you know, as you've said, can be very healthy and can accomplish, have accomplished the most beautiful and impressive um, achievements in human history have been done by groups, right? Um, but it's that better than, less than. It's that hierarchy, right? That That moral superiority that gets us in trouble, in particular, in a very interdependent, globalized world where there's a lot of information coming at us about them, right. whoever that right. is. Yeah, so so kind of being on the lookout for those things and trying to stay in good conflict, even in your own head. You know, just yeah. people will often say to me, well, what about when the other side isn't fighting fair? You know, like, this is all well and good, but if the other side isn't fighting fair, then what? You know, and that's a, that's an important question. And you have to start with your own head because you will yep. make huge mistakes. If you're, if you're sort of captured by the conflict yourself, 
you just make a ton of mistakes and you miss opportunities. And it's also just kind of a miserable place to live. Um, Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. And, you know, speaking developmentally, you need to be an adult to be able to look at reality from different perspectives, put different lenses on, you know, the father lens, the, 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 the brother lens, the teacher lens, the therapist lens, the Republican lens, the d- Democratic lens, but step back because blind faith is the enemy. Yes. <laughs> certainty that the leader is perfect or the right. doctrine is perfect or the policies are perfect. And we, we have basically an adversarial system, uh, two parties, and one party is now doesn't seem to care about rule of law or honesty, and they want to steal the election uh, this year and next year uh, by passing away from voting counts to letting, you know, state legislators, whatever, electors decide. So this is a fundamental threat to what we think of as America. And, but I'm not an advocate for fire. You need to use fire to fight fire. I do know that that is a technique in wildfire, you know, uh, control, but I also know it can get out of control when when they start a fire. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also important. I mean, I'm always reminding myself, look, yes, there are, there are some leaders in the Republican party who are doing the things you're saying, but you cannot generalize about 75 million people, right. Who, who voted one way or another, like you just, not every Republican wants to, uh, unravel democracy, you know, and so I think that's uh, totally. I totally that's agree. Part of the challenge, right, is how do we talk about this in a way that allows for that complexity? And there's a difference between voters and you know Mitch McConnell. Like there is a difference. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why I think it really there needs to be bottom up strategies locally with people that you know. And I've been saying over and over again, uh, cutting off contact or belittling people who've gotten into the other camp. So to, if we want to ter- talk about it that way, that's the biggest mistake because that gives the other side more power of influence versus taking that respectful curiosity and finding common ground, which is you know sharing food, music, dancing, art, you know, fun things, children, pets, like neutral things. And I'd say away from sports because some people can get really identified with their (laughs) local sports team. I live in Boston and I'm not a total Celtics fanatic, but I do want them to win. And it hurts me when they lose Uh and they should win. But anyway, (laughs) the, the point is, is finding humanity in each other and yeah. realizing we are on one planet and we need to figure this out and understanding that we're social beings. So we may privately be opposing things that we're seeing uh, uh, politicians from our party doing, but we may be afraid to say anything or do anything mm-hmm. to be perceived as you know, a traitor or an outsider or that you're not you know, on board. Um, but it, it, I think everyone needs to come back to, as you were saying so correctly, our own minds and our own bodies start with this. 
Like, and, and, and as a therapist, I can tell you that, that the healthiest people are ones that don't have unconscious conflicts internally, mm -hmm. where people shine a light on the dark side of their consciousness and say, okay, what's up with that? You know, you want to, you want to punch your brother in the nose? Like, you know, what's that about? Oh yeah. He, he punched you in the nose when you were eight years old. Okay. But you're 35 now. Let's yeah. make it conscious and let's discuss it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. just become more aware as human beings. Right. Right. So we're not just constantly spreading the pain around. Right. Um, yeah. Exactly. Um, so for me, I, I, I guess I, I, I'm an idealist. I'm, I refuse to give up. And I have to tell you, as a human being, there are days where I just have to unplug and I just can't take it anymore. Uh, and I need to, uh, you know, balance how much input is coming mm -hmm. at me, especially with traumatic material and such. And the media, unfortunately, is, you know, in the business to sell advertising more than it, it seems to be that higher purpose of helping uh, citizenry. And it's this corporate greed, you know, an ideological greed that I want to try to put a, a spotlight on um, because in the end, if, if we don't do something about global climate change and those billionaires that like Putin and, and the Kochs that want to keep people confused and undercut any legislation that's going to save the planet. I want to see their children talking to them about, you know, like, what are we going to do mm -hmm. if, if this ocean rises 10 feet in the next 20 years? Like, seriously. And I've recently done a couple of, of things about Ayn Rand and her, her ideology of selfishness and how she says altruism is evil. Like there's still a lot of very wealthy, powerful people walking around programmed by the cult of Ayn Rand. And it really was an authoritarian cult. Yeah, it's very, uh, very magnetic. Yeah. Yeah. And to call that young, out. Young men in particular, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, but hearing from other, you know, credible figures in their world, and it may be celebrities, it might be sports figures or whatever, uh, I think we need a messaging approach that is 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 identifying key key groups of people and that is tailored that will actually be effective and work. And by the way, you mentioned in your book Braver Angels, uh, the organization that brings together uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats put a, puts them in a room in a process. I joined it as soon as I learned about their existence. I think they had a name change since it started. Yeah. But these kinds of projects are very, very important in terms yeah. of really more exposure is, is what people need. They need to make friends and see other people as human beings who love their kids, who love their dogs or cats. Right. Right. And, yeah. And no. And along of... those lines, I guess I'd add that, you know, having spent 20 years working in the news media, now you, it's hard to generalize again, right? Because TV news is different from print news, which is different from, um, you know, social media. They all are looking for attention, right? They all are, you know, Facebook and the New York Times and CNN and Fox 
are all trying to capture your attention. And yep. I think there is corporate greed, as you said, but I actually think it's even more insidious than that. Like, I think the conventions and traditions of journalism, the stories we tell ourselves about what we're doing and why are just as powerful, you know? Um, no journalist I know, and I know a lot of them, does what they do purely for money. That's just not yep. the main driver. I think ego is the main driver. Hmm. I think ignorance about the psychology and the effects of some of the, the things that the news media does, I think there's a lot of ignorance about it, right? Um, mm -hmm. I also think it, they are they are captured by the conflict, a lot of my journalist colleagues, right? Like they're human, right? They're not separate right. from the public. So when, you know, voters feel outrage or fear, so do journalists. Um, sure. And, you know, I don't think that journalism has evolved for the way the world has changed and for everything we know, right? About how humans actually operate and what we need to thrive in in a kind of information saturated environment. So yep. it's tricky, but I think about it every day uh, and keep wanting to be able to have a news outlet that's different from what's out there. Um, but mm -hmm. it's, uh, there's well, certainly that's where you do demand, a podcast right? and I yeah. do a podcast. So we have a little bit of control. Yeah, there's no over... shortage of podcasts. That is yeah. for sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of overwhelming. I've avoided yeah. doing a podcast, but I, I did dive in in January and started my own. But um, I guess I want to, you know, state that um, people need to start with the understanding that the digital age has fundamentally changed everything and that the old rules need to be updated for this digital environment. And Facebook is delivering more content than anything else, and there's no regulation on, on in a way that makes sense. There's no data privacy regulation that absolutely needs to be put into place. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Tristan Harris and the Center for Humane Technology and their, their good work. I think that's good, but the greed of the system, you know, and the, the 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 paying off politicians to to advance agendas, that whole model is fraught. And unless unless a whole bunch of billionaires get together and say we need a new paradigm, it's not just about who has the most money wins. It's who's going to leave a legacy where the planet will continue to exist. And um, that my kids and my grandkids uh, will be proud of me and not not uh, ashamed of my my involvement. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Because other countries are now kind of passing us by, like the regulation of uh, particularly on data privacy is happening in, in Europe. Um, so it's a strange time to be in a country that's so rich and so powerful militarily and culturally and economically and also paralyzed, right, by its own dysfunction. Uh, it's, it's a very strange 
experience. It's like you're, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like being a superhero who can't get out of his house. <laughs> you know, you're trapped. <laughs> uh, you have all these powers, but you can't do good in the world. So, uh, or it, you can, you can do good, but it's harder. It's harder than it should be. Um, right. And I actually so, think it predates social media. Like I think, you know, if you look back, it's, it's before that it was, you know, cable news and, and which is also the same thing, right? It's a kind of inundation of, yeah, getting away away from the fairness uh, uh, doctrine. I mean, the systematic un, un, undoing of regulations that have been taken advantage of. I don't want to miss the opportunity to just say that I uh, am suggesting that Congress have open hearings on the topic of brainwashing and psychological warfare and QAnon, et cetera, um, and because there are members of our political system that have espoused pro-QAnon and other beliefs, let's put together a panel of the top experts in social psychology and let's explain uh, how to tell the difference and what's real and what's not real and call out the, you know, the bad actors as well as do the, the bottom-up mobilization of people. Um, what enemies of democracy want is for people to tune out, you know, just do video games or binge watch movies and not get involved with local politics and not, you know, uh, devote time and energy helping other members of their community get registered and have a way to, to vote uh, in all states. Um, and to create a new uh, consciousness that we need a new reality, that the same old, same old is breaking down quickly. And, and we, need, we need some out-of-the-box solutions. I so, agree. <laughs> yep. So um, I want you to, we have just a few more minutes left, but there was a couple of other uh, interesting uh, concepts you introduced in your book. Uh, and I thought I would ask you about fire starters. What, 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 explain to our listeners what fire starters are about. Yeah, so fire starters are just accelerants of conflict, that, you know, people or phenomena that, um, exploit conflict, that delight in conflict, and that would include conflict entrepreneurs, corruption, humiliation, and binary group identities. Great. And then another concept that I want our listeners, I really want people to get excited and either download your, your book as an audio, which I did, but also, you know, read it, uh, looping for understanding. Could you yeah, share so with our listeners that? is a concept that actually Gary Friedman and his colleague, Jack Himmelstein, have really worked on for many years. There are different kinds of active listening out there, right? This one is, uh, this one I like in particular because it's a little bit more intellectually and emotionally challenging. It's quite, um, it's quite complicated to do well. And so it's not just parroting back what the other person says, uh, but it's really trying to hear them and then kind of, um, distill what they've said, the essence of what they've said into the most articulate language you can muster 
and then check to see if you got it right, which is easy to forget to do that. But you have to check and be genuinely curious, right? Which also right. takes practice. Um, but when people feel that you're really trying to understand them, right, as you know, yep. everything changes. Like you don't have to agree on anything, but if they feel like you've heard them, they lower yep. their guard. They say more interesting, nuanced things. Um, but that only happens something like 5% of the time. Most of the time, people don't feel heard. And so they do the opposite. They get more and more extreme, almost exactly. like a child, right? Like screaming right. until you get their attention. Right. So I've been teaching this concept in a little different way since the 80s. But the, the couple of key points is... A lot of people when they're, and I think it's Celeste Headley has a great book on listening, uh, uh, if I'm not rem mistaken. But anyway, the idea isn't is not to be thinking how you're going to respond right. as the person is talking, but to really learn how to just totally be present, right? Take in the information, build a movie in your mind of what what they're explaining and then say, listen, I really want to step into your shoes. Yeah. Did I get this right? That you want, you need this, that this is what has been bothering you, this and this, is that correct? And if it isn't, please tell me what I'm missing or how you would change it. Hmm. And it's another piece of what I do in my communications work is uh, telling people that, Start with the assumption everyone's different than you instead of, you know, everyone should be thinking and reacting like you. Hmm. Start with the assumption everyone's different and be curious and respectful hmm. and avoid the I'm smarter than you or I'm more experienced than you. And and I'll give you a quick example. I, I've, I've been attacked by by folks saying I'm in the cult of Soros or I've been brainwashed mm. by the libtard media. And my reaction is, oh, really? Tell me more. Tell, <laughs> tell me why you think so. That's great. Please explain what brainwashing is. I really want to know. Yeah. And just by that courteous, respectful, turning it around, you know, explain, because maybe I am brainwashed, who knows, um, then there's a dialogue. And what I've learned in my approach also is it's always safer to go after something else first than mm. what the person's believing in. Uh -huh. And with people in the MAGA world going after Chinese communist brainwashing and what do mm. they do historically and what are they doing now? And then pimps and traffickers, mm. sex traffickers and labor traffickers, then you can get into details hmm. that are critical to reality testing. Yeah, that's and, a great. And, I've, and, I've, and, um, but you're yeah. also building a frame that they're oh, you're against traffickers too. Me too. Right. You know, especially the QAnon folks. Yeah, right? no, I agree. There's actually some interesting research by um, Aaron Halpern and his team in Israel who study emotion and conflict. That you know, it's really most effective to come at uh, an intractable conflict sideways, like through an analogy, like you're saying, like, don't, don't come at it head on. Um, and that's one of the reasons I didn't, you know, somebody said to me the other night, you know, why didn't you go after Trump in your book? Like you barely talk about him. Um, and it's because I want, I'm trying, like, I think this is a bigger problem than Trump, right? Like I think yes, it is. he's a very powerful example. Um, 
but I'm trying to create this scaffolding so that we can recognize future Trumps, right? And uh, it's tricky, though. It's tricky to navigate because people on the left want you to go after Trump, right? And really kind of name the devil, right? <laughs> uh, so there's like a real desire for for specificity, which I get. On the other hand, it's like, you know, if it's not Trump, it's going to be somebody else. You know, we've got bigger problems. hundred percent. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. I mean, I got talked into by my book agent and Simon and Schuster to do the cult of Trump, which I've always been a generalist, not going after a particular one, one group in any of my books, but I felt an obligation, maybe because I grew up 1.3 miles from Donald Trump in Queens and I've, I've known him, of him, my whole life, and I knew he was a malignant narcissist. That's how I started to agree to do this book before I learned about all the actual authoritarian cults yeah, and in I the think cult of Trump. That, that is an important, I mean, part of what people need to understand is what malignant narcissism looks like. What are the signs, right? So then we're less likely to vote for someone um, who displays this behavior, hopefully in the future. Um, so I, I do think that is important, right, to be specific, particularly when you have an expertise that allows you to say. Now, I mean, one of my great frustrations as a journalist was like this resistance to calling Trump a narcissist, right? That that it just was like insane at, at some point. And I understand that you don't diagnose people, that you're not treating, blah, blah, blah. But it just felt like cowardice at some point. And, and then the journalist repeated it. You know, I would talk to journalists about writing about narcissism and they're like, yeah, we just can't say that about Trump because, you know, he's not being diagnosed. And it became like a, uh, like a crutch, right? Like it was something people could lean on so they didn't have to talk about psychology. I think there was actually a bit of a conspiracy by Big Pharma using the Goldwater rule, uh, pressuring the American Psychiatric Association uh, that you can't talk about it. Bandy Lee did a New York Times bestselling book, edited it with 37 top professionals, and she was censored in the media, as I have been censored in the media. Um, but I do want to, because you mentioned it, I just want to name it. So normal narcissism, which is in the DSM-5, is grandiose, self-centered. Oh, and this is a for anybody to worry about anyone you go out on a date with even, right? This is right. this is life skills is 101. Because right. 90% of all cult leaders and predators are malignant narcissists. So we start with the grandiose self-centered behavior, fantasies of power, success, or attractiveness, need for praise and admiration, sense of entitlement. But here's the big one, lack of empathy, the mm -hmm. inability to step into someone else's shoes and imagine what they are feeling. So that's narcissism, which is on a continuum, by the way. There are many healthy narcissists who keep it in check and have a very yeah. healthy system around them. But the malignancy comes in, and this is a concept from Eric Fromm, thinking they're above the law, pathological mm -hmm. lying, interpersonally exploitative, sadistic, harassing and silencing, violent, paranoid and inability to trust friends and subordinates. Hmm. So when you go through that, and I did chapter three, comparing Trump with Jim Jones, my former cult leader, Sun Myung Moon, and L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology fame, just 
to show this is, I didn't make this up. This is really the stereotypical profile of who you never want to get in a relationship with or trust with any type of power hmm. in your life. Yeah. Much less right. give them the office important. of the presidency. Yeah. It's very important to understand. Yeah. So, but the, the thing is, is, you know, I really believe that um, the media has been infiltrated. I'm going to just say it, uh, knowing that you do media trainings. I think that there are members of cults that have found their way into very high positions in, in a lot of media companies that don't want to talk about brainwashing and cults and mind control. Maybe it's people involved with intelligence Shh, don't you know? Don't talk about the CIA and MK Ultra. The MAGA people do that, but the CIA did MK Ultra, and they never stopped their interest in brainwashing and mind control. I can uh, attest to that. Uh, my former cult is still active. They own the Washington Times. They have gun factories and compounds. Uh, Trump spoke for the Moonies, as did Pompeo and Pence and Gingrich and Falwell. So my former cult, it's a nightmare, but it's still going on. And I was there when Moon said, we, you know, democracy is satanic and we need a theocracy to rule the world and we'll kill everybody and send them to the spirit world if they don't obey our rules. And I was like, yes, father, great idea, father. And like, this is not the real me that was believing that. And when I was deprogrammed, I was like horrified because mm. I come from a Jewish family educated about the Holocaust, and yet they flipped me completely. Mm. So, yeah. but there's hope because there are millions of former cult members of authoritarian cults, but we need to destigmatize it. We need to educate mental health professionals, media, politicians, judges, teachers. And, 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 and that's what's going to save democracy, I think, having clarity over what's ethical influence and what's not. Who's a trustworthy spokesperson and who isn't a trustworthy spokesperson? And I'll just say this. If you, would you ever want to marry someone who's a pathological liar? Would you ever consider going into business with someone who's a pathological liar? The answer is no. You don't want them in in office, period. <laughs> like, really, this is a very important criteria. Yeah. Having agree. integrity. Yep. No, I think so, it's... Uh... So forgive me, I, I've been probably talking more than I had planned to, Amanda. I, I love your work. I, I do plan to, to read your other books, but I'd like to give you the parting words, um, what you would like to leave our listeners with, if you. No, I mean, I think, to. you know, it is so hopeful and helpful to learn from people who have been through the woods and out the other side and to realize that, you know, we're all susceptible to these uh, forces, right, of, of high conflict, of humiliation, of corruption, of uh, brainwashing. This is not, you know, it's not just those guys over there uh, or, you know, and, and equally we're susceptible to authoritarianism in this country. It's not just other countries. So, um, you know, if we haven't learned about our own humility and vulnerability by now, uh, then we're not paying attention. So 
I'm grateful to you for, you know, sharing your story and the story of other people who have, um, who have been on a journey and can speak about how that happened and how they got out. And, and that's, I think, our best hope. So I would agree with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And it's a pleasure. I hope we get to meet someday and maybe talk again at some point. And thank you so much for your good work. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast by Nasser Malik. To read in-depth articles about influence, both positive and negative, visit my website at freedomofmind.com. On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. I also have a three-and-a-half-hour online course titled Understanding Cults, The Basics, which can be found on my website. If you're a former cult member, I congratulate you on your bravery, invite you to use the hashtag IGotOut, and join our online community at IGotOut.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, love is stronger than mind control.